Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. On today's show, I'm joined by Andy Markovitz, one of the most popular professors at the University of Michigan. Andy is a fascinating guy who loves everything from soccer to comparative politics to the Grateful Dead, and we had a great time in our wide-ranging conversation. I'm sure you run into this all the time, the nonsensical constant contest about can you call it soccer and if you indeed call it soccer you ipso facto make it irrelevant i mean i i cannot tell you how often someone would get up and say something like professor markovitz great lecture but i have to object to one thing and that is and i already know then that is that you call the sport soccer i and not football i said i'm not getting into this this is insane all that and more coming up Our guest today is one of my favorite people in the soccer world. Andy Markovitz is the Arthur F. Thurnau Professor at the University of Michigan. He's also the Carl W. Deutsch Collegiate Professor of Comparative Politics and German Studies, a professor of political science, a professor of Germanic languages and literatures, and a professor of sociology. Andy has produced all sorts of publications on a wide variety of topics, but for our purposes, he is the author of three sports books. Offside, Soccer and American Exceptionalism, Gaming the World, How Sports Are Reshaping Global Politics and Culture, and Sportista, Female Fandom in the United States. Andy, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Grant. It's great to have you here in the Sports Illustrated New York studio for our podcast. Lots to talk about, but I wanted to start by simply asking how you got connected to soccer in the first place, and then how a serious academic like you decided to examine the sport in addition to all the more traditional academic topics that you've written about. Well, uh, we have four hours now. Anyway, (laughs) um, the first one is very simple. I got hooked uh, on soccer as a little boy in Timisoara, Romania, uh, which is also known as Temeshvar in Hungarian, uh, western part of Romania, and... um, I, uh, as a little boy, uh, this was the closest tie that I had to my father. Uh, I was a huge Stinza Timisoara fan, which <laughs> was the, the Stinza for, in Romanian means science. Okay. And later on, the team was renamed Politecnica, uh, Poly um, Timisoara. It's actually now defunct. The, the team is defunct. I've actually followed it some. And um, there were the, it was the blue team, and basically also tied to the university in some ways. Huh. And so it was like a kind of like a college team. But it played in the first Romanian division, and there was a red team, which was uh, the uh, railroad workers team. Okay. And so my father and I, uh, as a little boy, uh, he took me to these Jinza games, and I can still... I will not do it, but I can still name you the starting 11. Nice. And, um, but maybe more relevant for, um, you know, the audience here was uh, July 4th, 1954. Uh, the 4th of July when I listened with my father to the radio broadcast of the uh, Germany-Hungary uh, uh, World Cup final wow. in, in Bern. And this is, of course, a, a, a fundamental event for both. Uh, I have a, um, a wonderful German 
colleague now who wrote his dissertation under my guidance, which is called Tor, 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 mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the foundation, I'm translating, the foundation of the Federal Republic of Germany in 1950, at the Wankdorfstadion at the in Bern. Mm-hmm. And he's totally right that uh, really the Federal Republic, of course, was founded in May of 1949. But really, it's, its entire being, its entire, really, this is the coming out party. And you can also see this beautifully in that uh, phenomenal Rainer Werner Fassbinder movie, the, 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 the marriage of Maria Brown, when, in, when the, the house blows up. And who do you hear but in the 83rd minute, this guy Zimmermann, who of course goes, you know, goes nuts when Helmut Rahn scores the goal. And German soccer, and actually the Federal Republic never looked back after mm-hmm. that. Um, in my class on European politics, I have a whole lecture on this. Oh, wow. Okay, on, on German, on, when we talk about Germany also. Conversely, um, in Hungary, where the Oran Chapot, um, I speak Hungarian is actually my native tongue, but I don't speak it very well, but it means the golden team, mm-hmm. um, was, of course, favored big time. Uh, they beat the Germans two weeks before, eight to three. And they lose, and this is Hungarian soccer never recovers to this day. One of the great upsets in world soccer history, right? Yeah, absolutely. I would say the second biggest. The mm. biggest one is the U.S. beating <laughs> England in Belo Horizonte <laughs> four years before. No question. Yeah, I mean, by far bigger than this. Uh, this is sort of a little bit like Miracle on Ice. I mean. The Germans were not the Hungarians, but they were very good players. Hmm. Uh, our collegiate guys were not the the red, you know, the the Soviet team, but they were very good. Most of them went to the NHL, so it's not. Uh, but our f- soccer players in 1950 were real pikers compared to right. wh- whom they were playing. So, um, so the second largest upset, and of course, Hungarian soccer never recovers, and. Uh, uh, I, I'm sure, I know that many Hungarian or historians of Hungary would argue that the 1956 revolution um, I- I against the Soviet occupation starts with this. I mean, mm. the delegitimation of the regime and all on, on and on and on. Right. So this is number one, um, a very important event. What was also important about it is that my father, even though, of course, Hungarian-speaking uh, um, uh, person one and we were listening to the Hungarian uh, uh, broadcast by a very famous Hungarian soccer commentator hmm. I mean his name is Sepeshi George Sepeshi just known in the soccer world um, uh, especially for his major broadcasts against Hungary's defeat of England in 60 from 6 to 3 at Wembley and mm-hmm. then 71 at the Neipstadion in, 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 in Budapest um, still um, I rem- remembered detecting very clearly as a six-year-old boy that my father was not rooting for either of them. Hmm. And um, I remember after the game, this is a, a sort of identity-forming experience for me, he suddenly said, you know, uh, neither of these teams, neither of these countries have been good to us, meaning the Jews and Holocaust and all this. And the only thing that's important to you on this day is that this is the birthday of the United States of America because it was on the 4th of July. And I just looked at him probably completely deranged. Maybe I'd heard of the United States of America but didn't really, didn't put, uh, anyway. uh, And of course, 1960, we come to the United States. So this is number one. Mm -hmm. The other one was in fact, 
just memorialized a couple of uh, weeks ago was February 6, 1958, when the Busby Boys crash in Munich. And Munich, to me, is a horrible, horrible city. The rise of the movement, the Nazi movement, uh, this, uh, the killing of the Israeli athletes. I actually make it a point sometimes uh, to travel everywhere in Germany, but try to avoid Munich. It's a very traumatic place. This is a Manchester United place. This is Manchester United, yes, 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 yes. But, again, linked up to the four years before, Mm -hmm. had it been Bolton Wanderers or had it been Wolverhampton Wanderers, which at the time was very good, by the way, but any other English team... uh, uh, befalling this fate, I mean, um, we would have been. I would have been a fan for life. So there's mm. nothing to do with Manchester United. Okay. I mean, yes, there was some bit of. A, although, of course, this is Romania. We didn't know en- uh, uh, enough about this. But so the Busby Babes, of course, become known. But I think maybe post hoc. Mm. And um, as Stefan Szymanski, a colleague of mine at Michigan, who wrote his book on money and soccer, uh, uh, in fact argues, or he has this chapter on Manchester United, and he gives me as an example that, you know, here is my colleague, uh, Professor Andy Markowitz, and on, on and on, who becomes this inveterate United fan based on this horrible tragedy. And he, in fact, argues that this actually catapults United into this sort of special hmm. sphere which which it never relinquishes. Mm-hmm. And I think he's right about this, certainly in my world and to, to me. Mm-hmm. And so I became this lifelong United fan because of that. And I remember actually literally 10 years later in Vienna, I was visiting from Columbia for my first year at Columbia University and flew back just in time to see the United um, uh, European Cup uh, European championship victory over Benfica 5-1 huh. uh, to one, 10 years later with some of the Busby babes actually playing for United. So, you know, soccer was uh, sort of totally my, you know, my life. I, I, huh. I, I um, you know, I'm Stinza Timisoara, the 54 World Cup, and Manchester United's crashing in 58, February 6th. Had it not been a Tuesday this year, I would have actually had it not had I not been in the middle of the semester, I would have gone to Manchester for that. Okay, gotcha. Um, and you've written about a, a lot of other non-sports things. Do you want to give listeners just very briefly an idea of what those things are, and then sure. how you ended up writing about soccer? Academics? Sure. Um, those things are a lot about German-Jewish relations, a lot on uh, European social democracy. Um, a lot about new social movements. I wrote a book on the German Greens. Um, a lot about uh, Germany's role in Europe, um, both sort of uh, pre-World War, but above all, post-World War. I'm more a political scientist, not a historian, although a historically oriented political scientist. And the soccer thing is um, very simple, um, or not simple, but uh, it was after tenure. This is very important. Okay. <laughs> very important. And to this day, certainly in political science, this is a little bit different by now in sociology and also maybe economics and in history. There might be a space still with a big, I never know, big grain of salt or little grain of salt, but still very cautiously to, uh, uh, to be enjoyed where academia allows a space for what I call hegemonic sports cultures, meaning Manchester United, the Yankees, something that millions of billions follow. It's perfectly legitimate to write a paper on 18th century rural 
badminton in Lancashire or something. Okay, that is cool. Or you know, Italian uh, bicycle culture in you know Puglia in 1902. But writing a great monograph on Milan or on the Milan Inter, or by the way, it's it's just academia does not tolerate mass sports. And I would love to do a whole other podcast on why that is. Um, I, I actually found that out myself as, as an undergrad. My thesis was on politics and soccer in Argentina. And I basically ran into professors who thought I just wanted to go see soccer games. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's just very simple. Um, the, the brilliant uh, uh, Hans Ulrich Gumbrecht, a great Stanford genius um, who we just feted, who wrote, uh, wrote this amazing book called uh, In Praise of Athletic Beauty in which he actually argues why it is perfectly acceptable to follow Picasso or even certain forms of music, which is, uh, let's say, not classical, that has become acceptable in the academy, but it's just totally uh, a faux pas or you're you're looked at askance if you write about, again, soccer that millions of people follow. Uh, so um, anyway, I got tenure, and I was on a, a, a Columbia University alumni boat trip down from Vienna to the Black Sea, being the uh, the, the the commentator of you know of, of politics and whatever, but basically the entertainer, sort of <laughs> academic entertainer, and they, all these alumni tours have this, and it was the World Cup in Mexico, nineteen eighty six, mm-hmm. and I remember uh, during the day I spent. Uh, a good time, whatever we stopped in Budapest or in Belgrade, whatever, you, going with the men on the boat trying to find an international Herald Tribune to find out how the Boston Celtics were doing against uh, against the Houston Rockets. This was the Moses Malone final, and it was always a day late, but this was very important <laughs> to us. And then late at night, I would submerge. It was like this upstairs, downstairs, like the, the great uh, <laughs> BBC soap, soap opera. Yeah. I would have submerged down to the and would hang out with Ukrainian, uh, 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 Bulgarian, and Russian sailors or staff, yeah. and we would be watching at one a.m. Traveling in this boat, I don't know, Mexico playing Paraguay, whatever. <laughs> and I speak many languages, but none of those. And still there was this amazing tie. We'd say, oh, great. And they would know some of the you know, Mexican players or whoever it was. And I kind of thought to myself, wow, this is just so interesting. It's very male, but there's this com- immediate camaraderie, immediate understanding. So I'm all very much into languages and mm-hmm. studying. And these, these are languages. And clearly my upstairs men just didn't know any of that language. But yet it was, in terms of the structure, identical. Because it was male, it was um, a form of interest, a form of history, knowing, you know, whether tiny Archibald did this or that. And the same downstairs. And I went back, I was at Harvard at the time, and I went back and I um, spent that summer doing work on the what I call the other American exceptionalism. And let's be very clear about this word exceptionalism because it now is always constructed as being normative, that we are somehow better. That's not how it was understood at the time. It comes from the literature and why the United States is the only advanced industrial democracy that does not have a large uh, working class party, in other words, a large social, social, social democratic okay. or communist party, which is fascinating. It's the only one. 
And this has spawned a huge, huge literature starting in 1904 with Werner Zombart's great book, Warum gibt es keinen Sozialismus in den USA? Why is there no socialism in America? And Seymour Martin Lip. I mean, it's a major, major thing. And I, yeah. I was very much influenced by this at Columbia by studying uh, the legends of Daniel Bell and others. And it's always preoccupied me. And in fact, my work is always comparative Europe and the U.S. in some mm -hmm. ways, even when it's not explicitly about the U.S. in some cases. But I always draw parallels of why the German left does this and the American. So post-tenure, that's op the operative thing, because otherwise I would have never dared this, I decided to look at why the United States never developed soccer as a hegemonic sports culture. Okay. Why did it remain, just like socialism, a niche? Socialism right. has always existed in the United States. The Farmer Labor Party in Minnesota, Wisconsin, the radical, I mean, it exists, La Follette, all of this. Same with soccer. And I wrote this article, and... Uh, That's it. School starts. Uh, and uh, there was a very sort of elitist uh, study group at the Center for European Studies at Harvard called State and Capitalism Since 1800. And you had to be invited to give a talk, but everyone read the paper. You were supposed to just come in, talk for 10 minutes, and then it was discussion. And I was asked to present this paper. Hmm. And I was just blown away. I said, what? <laughs> so I did, but not only did I present the paper, it was packed. The hmm. audience was packed. I remember the legendary Charles Mayer, very eminent Harvard uh, history professor a lot on European history, wrote a great book, Recasting Bourgeois Europe, a legend. He was the commentator on the paper. Huh. So basically, they took this very seriously. Mm -hmm. And I was just blown away by this, how interesting this was. And It was kind of, I think, a sort of Harvard reverse. You know, Harvard, the Center for Europeans at Harvard can allow this to happen. Okay? <laughs> In the midst of all these great talks about history and philosophy, whatever, we can have actually Andy Markovitz, whom we respect, do this kind of odd thing about soccer. And you should have seen the people who came. They all were smiling a little bit. Like, so, you know, Andy, uh, it was fascinating. I mean, it was like, oh, okay, it's okay. It's a lark. And, you know, but, but look at this. I mean, the guy's just eclectic. It's fine. And then they sit down and see the footnotes and the research and all of this. And... Yeah, and it was this success. Later on, it was actually, it still is my most successful huh. article ever published. It appeared in 15 languages. Fast forward, 1998-99, I was invited as a fellow to the very, very select place called Wissenschaftskolleg zu Berlin, the Institute for Advanced Study in Berlin. And its rector was a wonderful guy. Is I mean, he's not a rector anymore, but brilliant sort of all-round mm -hmm real general generalist intellectual and he was the rector and ev all of the fellows had to go in and meet with him and tell him in five minutes what they were planning to, to do this whole year yeah and i walk in and i just had a, a, a book published on german germany's role in the new europe which the then foreign minister Joschka fischer wrote the preface for And I go in and I tell him what I want to do. And he, oh, too bad, I can't simulate this because visually. And, and, and Lepenis just goes. <laughs> <it's> like, <laughs> he says, what? Germany in the New Europe? Please. You've written about this. This is a different gig here. We want you to be creative. Didn't you write this article on why is there no socialism in America? 
which was republished, whatever, in German. What, are, you're, the, you're the author of this, aren't you? I said, yeah, 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 it's me. He said, come on, I want you to work on this. I mean, uh-huh. that's what I want you to do this whole year. I want you to, this is, forget about, you know, normal academic things. Do this, okay? And then, I will never forget this, was a life, he said, and by the way, you know, of course, I'm a huge, huge basketball fan, big NBA guy, and please write me a five-page memo why the hook shot has disappeared in the NBA. <laughs> and I thought to myself, wow, I love this guy. This is it. So what do I do? I spend the year writing my book, which became Offside Soccer and American Exceptionalism. And that was all due to Wolf Lepenis, uh, uh, who was the director, not director, rector uh, at the Wissenschaftskolleg. And huh. that's how I got into this. And um, interestingly, um, if you look at my C- I mean, I've given many, 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 many talks on sports, mm-hmm. uh, none in departments of political science. It's all history or sociology hmm. or sports conferences. It's still not seen as acceptable. And my huge sports politics and society class at Michigan, which is a major undergraduate class, um, when I got to Michigan in 99, only the sociology department, even though I'm not actually a full member of it like I'm the other two, uh, allowed me to teach it. And political science did not link up with it, I think, until (laughs) 2000. Seven, eight, nine. Now it's a huge class. In fact, 80% of the students of the 200 or so are political science students, huh. majors. But it's a very interesting thing. When I Once I presented my early paper at the American Political Science Association meetings in Chicago, and in those days you still had to provide 50 hard copies to the paper room. And as I think like all of, all of us would some, somehow stand in the corner and see whoever who buys our papers. This is a kind of, you know, you, you're hoping we are kind of you know, with books. And it. I wish, again, I had a camera to see the smirk that when they saw this paper, like, you know, what? Smirk or kind of like puzzlement. What? Right. Why is there no soccer in America? What is this? And this was on a panel, American exceptionalism. And kind of, you know, this is not kosher in some ways. So that's how I, you know, to me, it's a mission. First of all, it's my passion. I love sports. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, within sports, I above all love team sports. And within team sports, I love soccer. So it's like a, uh, you know, a concentric circle. Um, but uh, it is, you know, I, I, I think I would like to still see two things in, in my life, although I'm worried about one especially. One is I would love to see the United States come in into a semifinal in the World Cup, in, in men's, I'm yeah. sorry, in the men's game. And I'm worried a little. And then the other one is I also would like to see um, the study of sports and not micro sports. I mean, that exists, you know, uh, studying about injury and, right. and this or that. But basically, as I do, it's like larger historical trends, basic macro sociology, macro uh, history, macro politics, study of sports as a legitimate academic enterprise where I simply, as a friend, uh, one of my students actually was making a noise about in political science about writing something on soccer and corruption. I said, no, you're not. You want a job in, uh, you know, at a major American PhD granting research institution, mm-hmm. you cannot write a dissertation on soccer yet. Maybe. Even in, now. Even now. Absolutely uh, not. Wow. Absolutely not. 
Um, Again, maybe a little bit, I don't know it well enough. Maybe in sociology and certainly history, yeah. history allows, um, you know, but again, more micro things, like really the studying of, of you know, uh, a particular player and its biography or something like this. I mean, look at, for example, in Germany, the great, the great author of German soccer stuff is a guy by the name of Dietrich Schulz in Mameling, and he ain't at a university. He's mm-hmm. a freelancer. His wife is a wealthy physician and uh-huh. who, you know, he lives in Münster and he writes this great book on Bayern, Die Bayern. Uh-huh. Or he writes this great book on, on soccer and anti-Semitism or soccer and Jews and the Jew clubs in Europe and a great biography of George Best. The guy's not an academic. Huh. He's not at he's not professor of so and so. And even in England, I mean, yes, there's the Leicester School, which is very known in sports studies and sociology. And but if you really look at sort of the top, what quote unquote top British universities, there is my counterpart, the wonderful Christopher Young, who is actually even more. He's a he's a medievalist. He's huh. a medieval Germanist who is has similar passion for sport as I do. When he got tenure, he also wrote a great book on the the the, the Olympics, the Munich Olympics in 1972. Huh. Um, and he did actually a wonderful interview of um, English and German soccer personages interviewed by him and others. And that also became an important book. But he's also kind of, uh, you know, a freelancer, basically, huh. I mean, you know, like amazing. me. Amazing. Um, you wrote your book on soccer and American exceptionalism in 2001 is when yes. it was published. Yes. Um, a lot's happened in soccer in America since 2001. I can remember back then it was very hard to see a a live soccer game on American television. Uh, Now, this is one of the best countries in the world in which to watch soccer from all over the world. If I had talked to you in 2001 when your book came out, would you have predicted that we advance this far to this point that we've gotten to in soccer in America? Well, there's a bit of an intervening, so I have an advantage because the Gaming the World also addresses this, and that was published in 2010, so mm-hmm. a little bit. But um, uh, first of all, I totally agree with you. Uh, with the aforementioned Christopher Young, I see many more United matches here than he does there. Right. And I can. you're totally right. Uh, the, but that has everything to do with technology. and go. Um, would I have... Uh, predicted, I would have not predicted the international dimension to, this, to the degree hmm. that you describe. But actually, I hate to say it, I still do did predict that soccer, in terms of its cultural manifestation and its its presence in compa- contemporary American culture, it is still marginal. What do I mean by this? Yesterday, from our hotel, we go to Broadway to see a show, and we walk by all these stores with, you know, tchotchkes and right. nonsense. And among the tchotchkes, there is everything, not, I forget the Yankees, of course, but, you know, the Mets, the Jets, the, the, the Islanders, whatever. And I'm looking, you know, for something of the Red Bulls or New York Football Club. I'm some kind of a jersey or a fan or a, or I'm some kind of a, a, a pennant or something. Right. And in three or four stores, I found nothing. No, okay. David Villa keychains. I, I didn't look at the keychains. Maybe keychains, <laughs> but certainly sort of when you just walk in and caps and, yeah. and hats and... So, or, or, you know, when you... I was just in Chicago and at the airport at, um, uh, at O'Hare... 
um, you know, there's bears and, of course, you know, Blackhawks, whatever. There is no fire stuff. Huh. I mean, I'm talking about, so again, like normal airports where you fi- find the jerseys. And right. in Detroit, it's obviously Michigan, Michigan State, and, and you know, the Detroit teams. Um, so that's, in, in a way, what I mean. Uh, I mean, clearly, uh, there's been amazing progress. It's, it's the, glass, the glass is half full, half empty. I mean, it's half full in the sense that every time in my class, uh, every time I walk in the last two or three years, I see constant European soccer team jerseys. Right. Although, problematically, and we can maybe talk about never an MLS jersey. Never? I have never seen U.S. national team yeah. jerseys. But I've not seen, maybe in Michigan, it's mid, I've not seen anyone walk around with a San Jose jersey or a whatever. Not no. even when Beckham was with the Galaxy or anything like that. Galaxy, not really. I mean, I know, uh, I know from your wonderful book, I know the data about Beckham, and Beckham is a legend and is very important uh, for boosting soccer in America. But not really. Or not, and but yes, and now it's not only United and and Bayern and Real and Barca, but you know you see Roma shirts huh. and uh, you know uh, there's a actually a woman fascinating uh, is a huge Dortmund fan, and I ask her, so she doesn't know it's something about the colors, whatever. But there this this exists, yeah. and so this is I think a huge huge. Uh, uh, step forward. Uh, I mean the, the, the look, ESPN uh, top ten almost every night. Top ten, they have some soccer footage There's every st- single time. The stigma that used to be there does not appear to be there anymore. At least if you're a certain age, if you're under, you know, your forties or fifties, I think right now. I, I, you saw probably the Gallup poll that came out yes. in the last couple of months. It goes back. They've been doing this since 1939 or whatever. Uh, they, they do it every couple of years asking uh, Americans, what is your favorite sport to watch? And this time, soccer, professional soccer, was the closest that any sport had gotten to the big three yes. ever in that yes. survey. yes. Which yes. certainly suggests something is happening, and especially at younger ages, if you are a teenager these days, uh, your favorite sport is soccer almost as often as their favorite sport is the NFL or the NBA. Right. No, absolutely. And by the way, the offside, the, 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 the last chapter or the, the concluding thing is that I'm hoping, uh, writing in 2001, that in my lifetime, soccer will become a hockey. What do I mean by this? A fourth. In other words, that it is hockey clearly uh, not across the country, but certainly in major parts of the country is definitely part of sports culture. Sure. I mean, where I live, I would say, you know, Detroit is not by chance called hockey town. I mean, every time the local news, when the wings are on and also the Pistons, they almost invariably lead with the wings, hmm. regardless of how well they're doing. Uh, so clearly hockey, but that would be my, I want this to be sort of part of sports radio. I would, but, but then again, you know, someone actually told me that I'm, of course, dating myself, that in fact sports, um, uh, you know, I, I talk talking to a, to, to a um, soccer person, and I said, you know, I in Washington, okay? Mm-hmm. And I told him this when I was teaching at Michigan in Washington last year. I said, you know, what really bothered me is that I don't hear, I constantly have sports radio on 
on my car radio, and I've never, ever heard anything. It was at the time RG3 this and that, and the Reds constantly about, but I've never heard anything about DC United. Mm. To which this young man said, uh, Professor Markovitz, I hate to tell you this, but this is actually irrelevant. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean by this? Because we're not into, it's not about soccer, I'm sorry, it's not about sports talk radio. We're much more interested in Twitter. We're much more interested in our presence in social media. Hmm. It's not about what you listen to. And I think I'm, I, I stand corrected. I mean, maybe that's what matters. Maybe the fact that they're not on soccer, on the sports talk radio is irrelevant because it's only geezers like me who listen to it. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, uh, you corrected me, maybe hopefully correctly, when I said that our not going to the World Cup will set back soccer by 20 years. You said it will be less than 20 you years. You were pretty gloom and doom about that. I was gloom and doom about that. I still am, yeah. partly because I'm so upset. I was so... <laughs> Uh, it, it just hit me, I mean, uh, terribly. I mean, really, like, in the, in the gut, and I didn't expect it. Yeah. I wasn't even watching the game. <laughs> I didn't even, I just said, you know, I, had, I, I saw some graduate students. I just didn't even bother. I mean, hello, you know, you will, we will in fact draw against Trinidad Tobago uh, if we have to. I mean, this was just not an issue, but maybe we can <laughs> talk about this. Um, so that, yes, I think I was doom and gloom about this, and I actually do think that it is a setback. Yeah. Because it has to be. It has to be. A and setback. A, a setback, and I fear. Maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe a couple of months later, I shouldn't say twenty years, but it's maybe a decade or something, because it just means, you know, in every country, people watch these things are driven by nationalism, and I don't mean this in a bad way. It just is, and I just looked at the data, for example, how these the Olympic Games are completely national entities. Right. I mean, basically, the French see a different Olympic game from the Austrians, the Austrians are different from the Italians completely. And everybody watches their national stars. So this is just, uh, whether it's right or wrong, that's, this is a whole different discussion about why nationalism persists. But it does. And, um, you know, it will be just harder for other than, of course, not. I don't count because I actually have arranged my summer that starting June 11th until July, whenever it is, I ain't doing anything. So I'm going to watch the World Cup. But I'm, I don't count. For a number of reasons, first by virtue of my age and also because all these sports cultures are, are like languages. And the earlier you learn them, the better you speak them. And the better, the more conversant you are with them, the more you historicize them, the more you understand the nuances, you know, you're... you're uh, you know, you know the lyrics, you know the, 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 the poetry. And it doesn't mean that if you learn it later, you can't be proficient at it. In fact, enjoy it. But it's harder. The, the barrier of entry is larger. And clearly, for me, the barrier of entry is nil because that was my first. If, if anything, the barriers of entry were the American sports. And interestingly, um, just parenthetically, I will never be an American football speaker the way I'm a baseball or basketball speaker Why? because I learned it later. I, I, I learned it already in college or maybe even graduate school. Okay. And of course, I know the rules and whatever, but I just don't, I just don't see it the way. I mean, I don't, don't understand some strategies. I just don't, I can't explain it. It's like one of those things you know you don't. And I just don't. It's just not there. 
You wrote a book called Sportista, Female Fandom in the United States, and I had a question about that. Is is female fandom for men's sports any different from female fandom for women's sports? In soccer terms, I'm particularly struck by Portland, Oregon has a very popular men's team, the Portland Timbers, and a very popular women's team, the Mm -hmm. Portland Thorns. But what's interesting is those fan bases have totally different vibes. If you go to a Thorns game versus a Timbers game. And there's families and women at, at both, but it's just different. That's a great, it's a very complex uh, question. Uh, um, I mean, soccer in the United States is, of course, much on both sides. The fact that a women's team is even as prominently mentioned as a men's team is already an American exception. Right. It's an American difference, coming back to the exception. I, I don't mean the word exception to be a normative term. It's an empirical term. It's just different. Yeah. So that alone is a different thing because um, it's not the case with Bayern Munich and it's not the case with uh, um, Turbine Potsdam, which is the you – know, Turbine. I went to a couple of Turbine Potsdam games. There were 1,200 people there. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, and that, of course, means that in the United States, it became so feminized precisely because the uh, big three or the big four were, of course, taken up, uh, took, took up the space of ma- malehood, of manhood, manhood, and basically male sports, which, of course, soccer is the other, uh, is the one in, in, in everywhere else. So, which, have, of course, has a lot of consequences. I'm actually the keynote speaker at a conference in Berlin, why, in fact, soccer fans are more violent. And Hmm. one of the answers are very clear is because it's much more male. But that's a different story. So did I see a difference in men and women in terms of men and women's sports? Um, What I found, and actually I did not include soccer in this, but what Hmm. I found interesting is that that women are actually consumers of major American sports. So mm-hmm. they are they know more about the American ma- major sports because they're on television more. Okay? Mm. Um, and the ones that actually I found very interesting who followed, for example, the WNBA very closely or women's college basketball, what I call were the, the what I call the people called uh, uh, omnivores. In other words, these men who actually follow anything. And who really followed the stuff and 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 uh, are cons- you know uh, you know numerize it and look at it statistically and all this and this is a handful of uh, you know nerds who are you know like me who actually follow all of this and so um, other than that I th- I thought that women who whom I call sportista meaning the hardcore which of course of, who, of whom they're few mm-hmm. okay are every bit as um, uh, committed to their to their sport and their team, although more to their team than their sport, hmm. meaning, um, you know, a, a, a Knicks fan would know as much about the Knicks, a female as, as a male Knicks fan, but may not actually know, uh, you know, about the G League or do not, may not follow the sport as in such detail as 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 men would. Um, and look, it's less of a salient language to women. Hmm. Um, it's, uh, you know, they're much, actually, as I argue in the book, they're much more multilingual. They can talk about many other things. Men actually 
are pretty modern as well, which is heterosexual men. Basically, you know, regular uh, are basically it's about sports. And in yeah. fact, back to my father. I mean, the the reason that sports became so important is because and soccer really um, uh, became so important is because it was the only thing that was not fraught with some difficulty. Uh, studies were, women were, are you getting married or not getting, all of it. Politics was, religion was, all of these things were fraught with some tension. But somehow, you know, watching a match was just, you know, it was just bliss. You just could really enjoy it, um, riff on it, uh, historicize it. It was just... uh, Amazing. So it's not by chance one of the most important memories for me was to have gone to um, three World Cups with my father, 66 in England, 74 in Germany, 82 in Spain, and uh, uh, three Olympics. And these were just unique memories. And precisely because there is this kind of this language that exists, which is kind of apart from, you know, from contested space. My first memories as a human being are of watching the 76 Olympic boxing with my father sitting next to him on his his chair uh, and getting really into, like, U.S. boxers doing well. I mean, it's like that's – yeah, that's something that you associate yes, with. Yes, And, in fact, I give my father, uh, you know, everlasting credit that when we arrived in the United States, he decided to take me to Yankees games. Hmm. And he never got into it. He never really understood the game, but he understood that it would be important for, you know, 11-year-old boy uh, arriving in the United States, uh, learning the language, my words, language of baseball, that this is, and and there you have it. I mean, so clearly, and this is just less salient for women. It doesn't mean that this is any better or whatever. It's just different. Okay. Um, you spoke to a bunch of MLS bosses back in 2013 at an event in Indianapolis, uh, gave a basically a paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've read it, but I'm curious to hear from your end, how, you know, what were sort of the main things you talked about to them? What were the circumstances of you speaking to these MLS guys? I think the circumstances were that they knew my work and they wanted me to speak. Um, I certainly, they didn't confine me at all. I mean, it was basically just give us your 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 assessment of soccer in America. Okay. Basically, that's what this was. And I did, and I think, and uh, basically praised MLS. Uh, I, I'm, I'm convinced that MLS is absolutely a, a great, great necessity to, to create soccer culture in America. And that's why I'm kind of concerned that I don't see these paraphernalia and chains and whatever banners in a normal in a tchotchke store in New York um, because I would love to have, would love to see it. And and so what my talk there was to talk about sort of the difficulties that also are, are, are faced, are, that soccer faces and, and, and MLS hence faces. And one of them was in fact that, you know, my students are that basically what I call the crowding out effect that maybe you know, the EPL. I mean, I hear it all the time from my students. They said, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, of course, Saturday morning, you know, watching Liverpool. So and why would I watch, uh, you know, MLS? It's inferior quality. 
And that's an issue. I think that's a very serious, I mean, MLS has gotten so much better. I follow it. I mean, it's just incomparable from what it was even 10 years ago. Right. Um, maybe it's also unfair. I also think that um, what I raised, I mean, there are all kinds of other difficulties. One of them is the, uh, in some ways, I always I would have loved to have in soccer um, a different language as if uh, we wouldn't speak English. But like Esperanto, Esperanto, or something, <laughs> because the 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 crowding out of American legitimacy by the dominance of British English is, mm. I think, a problem. Meaning, uh, not per se. I mean, I love Arlo. I mean, don't get me wrong, but but it is a it codes the game by definition as somewhat foreign. Mm. Or that foreignness is in fact attractive, or it's the only legitimate one. And um, I, uh, you know, uh, if it weren't, we wouldn't speak English. This would not be an issue. I mean, it, I mean, the whole. I'm sure you run into this all the time. The con, the, the nonsensical, constant contest about can you call it soccer? <laughs> and if you indeed call it soccer, you ipso facto make it. Irrelevant. I mean, I, I cannot tell you how often someone would get up and say something like, Professor Markovitz, great lecture, but I have to object to one thing. And that is, and I already know, but <laughs> that, that is that you call the sport soccer I, and not football. I said, I'm not getting into this. This is insane. Why this nomenclature, a completely unimportant issue. Football in this country was occupied by a different code. Okay. There are many football codes, Australian rules, rugby league, etc. Here it's America. It's fine. There's nothing. And I find it so tiresome, uh, tiresome. But also, I, never mind my tire. I don't care if someone's. Uh, <laughs> but what I find is that it actually bespeaks something. In other words, if, for example, I find it bad because I also think that it's a certain form of insecurity. Yeah. In other words, it's a it's a kind of, um, you know, I. Uh, um, I will not mention who it is, but uh, um, a, a British sportscaster um, t told me that he has to be very careful to the American audience not to refer too much to any American sports in his huh. analogies. And I found this completely made sense to me. Okay, and I and that's that's crazy. There's nothing wrong with. Him say, oh, this is like a quarterback doing this, or he plays like a point or something. Right. I mean, that's what enriches sports. I mean, I'm, of course, even in my other field, I'm a comparativist. I always look at, com think comparatively. That's wonderful when you say something, oh, this is, you know, um, whatever, that whatever comes to the person's head. I think if it's done appropriately, I'm totally fine with it. I, I think where I run into some issues that I have with coverage is I feel like we should cover soccer in the media the way we cover any other sport, that we don't need to dumb it down. We don't need to uh, act as if our audience isn't savvy, because I think the American soccer audience is very savvy, savvy, especially now. Absolutely. And yet I think that's fine if you have a, a security in yourself that, yeah, you're okay comparing so-and-so to the way a quarterback sees the field. Uh, I, yeah, I'm totally okay with that. In terms of nomenclature, my feeling is I want to be as inclusive as possible, welcoming new fans to the sport of soccer in the United States 
and everywhere. And I don't care what terms you use to describe the sport itself, to describe a pitch or a field. I don't care. We all love the same sport. Right, right. But you see, when there is a form of insecurity, whatever, it's very important that you be ideologically rigid and that in fact if in if in fact you dare call it a field rather than a pitch and it's a you call it a tie rather than a draw on and on and on you are actually violating a um, a rule you're violating a, 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 like a sacred trust and uh, <laughs> and I think that's just uh, I hope that the American audience by now should be beyond that but you know whenever I sometimes listen to this I always what comes to mind is, I forget now which one of the great uh, historians, C. Van Woodward of Yale or of Richard Hofstra, Columbia, or maybe Louis Hartz uh, of Harvard in the 60s, had this wonderful argument in which he said that in some ways we never attained independence from Britain. And what he meant by this is, of course, culturally, and certainly in elite culture, that's correct. You know, that there is some kind of valence to British or being British that, in fact, is superior. Uh, I mean, uh, it's a whole different topic of which I know a lot as well. But uh, about that, you know, I mean, I'm convinced that, uh, you know, the the Beatles and the Stones uh, really um, repackage Chicago African-American blues, especially the Stones, and make it so powerful by dint of their British accent. In other words, it's, a, it's, a, it's sort of, there's something cool about this. And uh, if it were not English, uh, we would not have to battle this. We wouldn't even have spent the last five minutes talking about it. Because the Italians call it calcio and the others call it lobda rugash in Hungary. Hungarian, you call it whatever it is. It doesn't matter. And the game has to grow and people have to follow it and or should follow it because it's just the, this amazingly wonderful sport, um, period. I mean, and, and, and it's ir- irrelevant of what it's called. But there are these battles and they're not yet completely cast aside. Where do you think the sport of soccer, by way of concluding our interview here, where do you think this, the sport of soccer will be in the United States in the next five, ten years or so? I actually do think that my prediction of 2000, or hope, hope more than prediction of 2001 of hockey is doable. In other words, that it is. I think it's there, my man. No, but I mean, I don't mean numbers. I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't mean I don't numbers. mean to interrupt. Go ahead. No, no, you can. Please, please, by all means. No, I don't mean numbers. I know that. I know the number. But I, I mean in terms of, you know, when you open, again, maybe again, I'm too, I'm, I'm old fashioned, you know, the local news, the. The, yeah. I mean, it, that's what the eleven o'clock news. I come back to the hotel. You know, I, if we're soccer season, do the Red Bulls get as much uh, air as the Giants or the Jets? Yesterday, I mean, it was all Giants. I mean, of course, there was no Red Bulls yet because the, the season hasn't started. But right. that's what I want. I, okay, and there were some. There was something about the blue shirts. You know, in fact, even the Islanders. So the Rangers, Islanders. Nothing about the Devils last night. That's what I mean. Yeah. Not numbers. So I think that that's doable. Um, it has to be a, I would argue, a two-pronged cultural, I mean, two-pronged attack on the field, as it were, which will then create culture. Number one, the national team. The national team is 
absolutely essential. Mm. Above all, not for you and me, not for the insiders, mm. not the people in the bullseye, but people out in the periphery in one who are kind of like the sport but are not into it. They don't. And this doesn't make them bad. This doesn't make them immoral. This is another thing where a little bit the audience sometimes is very judgmental about, you know, oh, my God, this guy knows nothing and has never heard of Pushkash or whatever, or, you know, <laughs> uh, don't, it's, it's, it's fine. I mean, there shouldn't be a purity test here. Right. And I think that should not be the case. And I think if that happens and if the national team does rebound and if, in fact, is successful, um, and I really also hope that MLS teams become successful in the CONCACAF Cup. Right. Very important. We yeah. got to win that. I mean, the, these teams have to sort of become part of a larger. The bleeding into the rest of sports culture right. has to happen, and I think the, the means are here. The technological means of Twitter, Facebook—it's all here. It's all about bleeding. It's all about breaking boundaries. Um, so I'm actually very optimistic. Um, maybe not with, you know, I'm turning 70 very late this year. And I'm just worried that, you know, um, I don't know, I won't, won't live until 90. But I, I, I just, uh, you know, I really wanted to see the United States uh, men's team making it to the semifinal of the World Cup and, um, you know, lose in a, a, a legendary game against <laughs> Brazil or Argentina or Germany. I mean that's fine with me. I mean I'm I'm I I realize that winning the World Cup is so brutal, so difficult, so incestuous in many ways. Um, by the way, all these sports are the the, the Cinderellas. Now we're come getting to March Madness. No, <laughs> yes they exist in the first two or three rounds, right. but just look at the last twenty winners. The last, it's just not true. So it's very very hard. So that's why I would be immensely happy if. Uh, I would see such an event, and this would cause, this would create such a, a kind of a, 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 a pull, a cultural pull. It's like almost like a vacuum cleaner it would just pull in to soccer, and people would follow it and develop the 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 love for it. And um, you know, ultimately, I hope that um, in this, it's very difficult in the United States. It's the only country that has three major sports languages. So if you're a 10, 12-year-old boy, it's very difficult. You know, you don't automatically jump into soccer. Right. And in my book, Gaming the World, I looked at two, two or three sports athletes. They're virtually unknown anywhere else. Hmm. I mean, there's a couple of British uh, English players who were so-so cricketers. And actually, a guy who played for Spurs, I forget his name now. Oh, play cricket, but it's very, very rare, mm -hmm. and uh, this is not rare in America. And so, I mean, rare at the NBA and the, on the NFL and MLB level, but not in high school, and certainly not even in college. Right. And there, if you know, if we could get some uh, great stars, uh, um, you know, the next Chris Paul should be a soccer star. Christian Pulisic. Yes. Yes, Christian Pulisic. Yes, I absolutely agree with you, and I'm 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 almost becoming a Dortmund fan, fan. And had had like, here here is the let's end with this. Had he gone to Liverpool, or right. may if he goes to Liverpool, he may yeah yes. If he may go, if he goes to Liverpool, I promise here and on your podcast that I will not detest him 
with the same amount of venom that I do now as a United fan. In fact, I may even root for Liverpool other than when they play against United. So, you know, Kirsten Pulitzer, absolutely. He is one of the most popular professors at the University of Michigan, and now he's been on our podcast. Andy Markovitz, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Andy Markovitz as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Please, if you like the pod, tell your friends, subscribe, like, and review it wherever you get your podcast. It really does help the cause if you do. And check out the new 30-minute Planet Football video show hosted by me and Luis Miguel Echegaray on SITV. That's available on Amazon with a free seven-day trial. Recent guests include Julie Ertz, John Sutcliffe, Matt Pence, and Iris Cisneros. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? The number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.